Welcome to the third episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Last time, we talked about neuromodulation and touched on various neuromodulation protocols. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Candy Tiefertiller for a deeper dive on one of those protocols, transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation. Dr. Tiefertiller is the Director of Physical Therapy at Craig Hospital in Inglewood, Colorado. She's a board-certified specialist in neurologic physical therapy, and I guess I'm feeling the need to tell you that she's just she's one of those people who has an iron in every fire. I first met Candy when we were on the Spinal Cord Injury Edge Task Force together, and since then it seems that everyone I encounter in the Spinal Cord Injury Rehab world has worked on something with Candy at one point or another. She's been involved in numerous research projects, including a current project involving transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation. Welcome, Candy. Thank you, Rachel. It's so nice to be able to chat with you today, and I appreciate the invitation and opportunity to speak with you and to talk about transcutaneous spinal cord electrical stimulation. Absolutely. So for today's topic, I'll refer you to a paper that Candy chose for us titled, And Yet It Moves, Recovery of Volitional Control After Spinal Cord Injury from the journal Progress in Neurobiology. It's from 2018. The full citation is listed in the description of this podcast episode. And for listeners who will be attending the APTA's combined sections meeting in Denver next week, Candy will be presenting a session on this topic titled Neuromodulation in Combination with Task-Specific Training to Improve Outcomes After Spinal Cord Injury. So that'll be on Friday, February 14th at 11 o'clock. You should definitely check it out. Now, before we start going into detail on transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation, I think it might be a good idea for us to take a step back and redefine neuromodulation for anyone who hasn't yet listened to the last episode where we had a bit of a primer on neuromodulation. And I guess I feel like this is where we should cue the theme music again for a last time on discus kind of feature. Um, but so by way of definition, neuromodulation refers to techniques that change the excitability of the nervous system in some way. And generally, the goal is to increase the baseline excitability of the nervous system. Neuromodulation techniques vary in the modality used, such as electrical or magnetic stimulation or pharmacology, and they vary in which part of the nervous system is being targeted. Um, so, Candy, is there anything else that you'd like to add or change about that definition? No, I think that's a great definition. I just think about it as targeted delivery of a stimulation to the spinal cord with the goal of modulating spinal cord excitability or modulating, generally, as you said, upregulating um, spinal cord excitability. Nice. Well, so let's go ahead and talk about transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation. Um, so, Candy, maybe you can start really with the with the problem. What's the problem that transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation is trying to solve in the first place? Sure. I'm going to talk just a little bit um, about history first to kind of bring us um, to where we are today. But, you know, I think as clinicians and as researchers, We've all seen with the integration of activity-based therapy approaches in the clinical environment over the last 10 years, um, people who have recovered to levels that have exceeded historical outcomes. And we've read and experienced evidence that supports that various forms of locomotor training and electrical stimulation may be beneficial for promoting walking recovery and or neurologic recovery in individuals with motor incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, and in turn, helping them achieve greater levels of functional recovery, independence, and quality of life. 
Um, and the most important factor that appears to be influential in, in that recovery from motor incomplete spinal cord injury is really training intensity. So we know training needs to be task-specific, and it needs to be an intense practice. But with those variables, we have seen that individuals with motor incomplete injuries really have a greater potential of recovery than historically reported outcomes and, quite honestly, than I thought was possible when I started treating spinal cord injuries uh, 20 years ago. But at the same time, whether you're a clinician or a researcher, or maybe a combination of both, we also know that the most significant predictor of recovery is severity of injury. And it appears to be the one factor that can't be overcome with any of the training interventions that we currently have in the clinical environment. So for example, um, we just don't have the types of interventions that facilitate the same level of recovery in individuals with, diagnosed with motor complete spinal cord injuries as we do for those individuals diagnosed with motor incomplete spinal cord injuries. And you know, an example of this, I found some pictures in the archives of Craig and it was a gentleman who was learning to walk with long leg braces back in the 1960s. And then I, a couple of years ago, we had a patient here, and he came in for that very purpose. Both had thoracic-level injuries, and they wanted to find a way to get up upright weight-bearing and walking after the injury. And so I took pictures of the gentleman that was here just a couple of years ago, and I compared those pictures between, uh, between the pictures that were taken in the 1960s and what you can see is there's very little difference in the technology that we offer uh, between, you know, between the 1960s and today for somebody who has a truly motor complete spinal cord injury. So you're looking at 60 years of, of time and the technology really hasn't changed to really help those individuals with more severe injuries recover. And so that's where I think that um, transcutaneous spinal cord electrical stimulation may really help us improve the interventions that we're providing to individuals with more severe injuries so that they also have the opportunity to facilitate recovery, neurologic recovery, functional recovery after that very severe spinal cord injury. So in my mind, the problem we're trying to solve with transcutaneous spinal cord electrical stimulation is we're essentially trying to turn up the volume within the spinal cord so that we can allow very weak signals that are coming from the supraspinal centers to transverse that injury site and still allow them to depolarize motor neurons that enable voluntary activated movement. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I've been a clinician for around 20 years, a little bit over as well. And um, I'm, I'm with you. That's really the, that's exciting to hear is it's absolutely a patient population that it can be really frustrating to not have more to offer them. Um, that's, that's great. Uh, can can you describe for me really what transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation is, like the logistics of it? How is it applied? What does it look like? Help us visualize this. Sure. So you did a nice job of kind of opening the discussion today with what neuromodulation is. And, you know, so this type of stimulation is a type of neuromodulation. And the idea is that um, it can be used to transform networks of surviving neurons that have become dormant after an injury back into an electrically viable state, or if you want to call it a physiological functional state, so that those neurons can continue carrying and transmitting electrical current again. Um, so from a pragmatic standpoint, we're using a simulator to deliver simulation right over the spinal cord using a very high carrier frequency, 
which is thought to be able to deliver that stimulation a little bit deeper into the cord than we've ever than any of our current commercially available products. Um, we are using it in a small pilot study that we're doing here at Craig for individuals who have cervical injuries, and we're combining it with both upper and lower extremity mass practice training. So for the upper extremity training, we're essentially placing um, two centimeter elect uh, round electrodes directly over the skin on top of the spin cervical spinal cord. Uh, most of our patients have hardware in that area, so our goal is to place the electrodes above and below their hardware, but not directly on top of it. So the electrodes are sitting between the spinous processes of the vertebrae, but around that hardware, because we don't want to stimulate directly over it. Um, and then utilizing this type of stimulation, the goal is essentially to enable voluntary movement um, in the upper extremities. So we're combining that stimulation with task-specific training of the, of the uh, upper extremities, and we're only turning the stimulation up high enough to enable that movement, but not to force that movement. Um, so we're doing the same thing in the lower extremities. Um, so you can kind of take the protocol and just bring it down a few spinal levels. So we're generally placing those electrodes over T11 and T12, and then again over T12 and L1, or the coccyx, um, essentially to activate different areas of the lumbosacral cord. And the goal of using this type of stimulation is very different from our uh, traditional use of neuromuscular electrical stimulation or functional electrical stimulation. Um, so as we all know, when we use those types of stimulation, we're really focusing on peripheral nerve activation and result, the result is really forced depolarization and motor activation. So if you have the stimulation over that peripheral nerve, you know, essentially it's going to force that depolarization um, of those motor units that are in the surrounding area, but the individual doesn't really have any voluntary control over that. If it, if it simulates, it's going to fire everything, and, you know, there's very little supraspinal control of, of what that looks like. However, when we look at transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation, again, the goal is to essentially turn up the, vol the uh, volume of voluntary signals that are coming from supraspinal centers so that they have enough electrical power to facilitate action potentials that ev eventually may result in voluntary movement. So, you know, it's essentially I think about it as um, the resting threshold of activation within the spinal cord. And if we turn it up a little bit, then there's less of a, of a gap that's required for those signals coming down to actually activate that, those action potentials. And so it makes it a little bit easier for a weaker signal to then result in depolarization and um, alpha motor neuron activation. So um, that's kind of the logistics of, of how we do it and a little bit of, of what we're hoping to gain. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that we've learned so far early in this pilot study is that it's clear that location and intensity of transcutaneous electrical stimulation is critical uh, to target the particular neural structures across different motor pools. And I, and I think that's one of the areas that we're learning the most about right now. Um, you know, Dmitry Sayanko published a nice paper in 2015 reinforcing some previous work by Kendall and Sherrod, which really mapped out those motor, motor pools in the spinal cord and showed that the motor pools don't directly correspond to the vertebral levels. And I think that's something that I didn't honestly realize until I started doing some of this work. So, for example, when we're activating muscles that are innervated uh, by L1, L2, we've found that they likely sit, those motor pools likely sit between vertebra of T11 and T12. 
Um, and then in most people, the motor pool is activating muscles innervated at L4, L5, actually sit between vertebral levels T12 and L1. So placement is critical. The electrode placement is critical for differentiating the activation of these motor pools between flexion and extension. So obviously, you know, depending on what the individual's deficits are, if we want to get more flexor activity, we essentially turn the volume up a little bit higher um, on the electrodes that are sitting at T11, T12. And when we're looking for more extensor activity, then we increase the um, amplitude of the electrodes that are sitting at T12, L1. And then when you look at the coccyx, when we're looking at more distal activation, you know, in the uh, maybe the anterior tib, the plantar flexors, just anything more in the distal lower extremity, then we're getting more activation if we stimulate over the coccyx. Um, but like anything that we do in therapy, we all have different body shapes and sizes, and, and so it's been um, really interesting just to see that a tiny little um, movement of that electrode can really change that motor pool activation. So really trying at this point to better understand how we can maximize the location and the intensity to really um, activate the motor pools that we're looking for. So, Kindy, as you do that, then, are you, I guess, why not activate all of the motor pools? Um, are you very, being very selective in terms of whether you want more flexors or extensors or more distal muscles? Or, again, why not, why not just activate everything? Yeah, so really good question and something that we've been putting a lot of thought into lately. But essentially... You know, in, in clinical practice, you get those patients in who maybe those, um, just for an example, those very weak, weak Cs, um, Asian pyramid scale C, who have never honestly, no matter what intervention you've provided them, they've never really been able to maximize that recovery or you've never been able to help facilitate any appreciable recovery, right? And I've always, that's a population that I've, has always been near and dear to my heart that I've wanted to really find different ways to help them um, get more recovery. And mm -hmm. essentially, you know, oftentimes you'll see them come in and they're more flexor-oriented or extensor-oriented, right? Those are those people who can initiate steps, but they don't have any stance-based stability, or they have a lot of stance-based stability, but they can't initiate a step. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think for those weak um, Asian pyramid scale C injuries, I think this differentiation of the motor pools is going to be really, really important to help them maximize their recovery. Then I think um, some of the thought process I've had taking a, a step back to those individuals with mo motor complete injuries, those ones that are truly Asia A, Asia B, and they don't have any voluntary activation below their level of injury. You know, then I go back to more of what we know from a motor learning standpoint, that you need to have stability before you can have mobility. And so thinking along those lines, how do we really excite those extensor motor pools to then teach them how to recover that stability before we then start imposing um, flexor activity or, or really focusing on flexor activity for that mobility component? And so, again, you know, this is still really um, in its infancy stage and in learning the, the specific roles of these motor pools and how best to activate them. But I think that's what I try to do from a, um, you know, that's the research side of things. And then from a clinical side of things, I try to use my experience as a clinician to then say, okay, so what, what are the main deficits that this person has? And if we could change that or change at least one component of that, 
how could they be more independent or how could we improve their function, um, you know, that would be most impactful for them. And then once we, you know, once we kind of get that first component, which may be extension, then how do we also give them flexion after that? Um, so I, I hope that kind of makes sense in terms of the clinical um, decision-making that we're doing. I think early on we were just trying to turn up the volume everywhere and we're ex super excited about just getting um, activation below the injury site that we hadn't seen previously. And now I think we're taking it a, a little step further and trying to be a little bit more critical in how we and in, in what specific motor pools we activate and, and, and how we know that motor learning happens and the kind of the continuum of, of motor learning that needs to happen for somebody to truly develop more uh, functional and coordinated control. That's it's exciting to think about just how then like the neuroscience and the motor learning and our clinical skills and and really patient I would imagine patient preferences on what their high priority goals are how that can really all interplay with this good neat stuff yeah thank you and so what what are the effects that you're seeing so far um, in terms of like how much recovery is this helping people get or what types of recovery yeah. I think it's really exciting. Now, I'm, you know, I tend to be an optimist by nature, so take that um, <laughs> with a grain of salt. But I know as a clinician, I've never seen the types of outcomes in our, in our clinical environment um, in the last 20 years that I've been able to see with just a few subjects um, who are receiving transcutaneous uh, electrical spinal cord stimulation. So I'm really excited, but also cautiously optimistic, understanding that we truly are, in my mind, in the infancy of understanding um, the mechanisms behind this. I think there's some great hypotheses out there and also some good literature to start su to support those hypotheses. But I think, you know, again, it's still so early on to really understand this. But that's why I chose the article, the review by Ticola et al., because I think it really starts to build a nice mechanistic view on how this type of stimulation in combination with task-specific training may be able to activate dormant neural pathways even in the individuals with the most severe injuries. And, you know, as we talked earlier, that's the group that we really haven't, in my mind, done a great job from a clinical or research perspective in figuring out how to, to really help them recover. Um, you know, so some authors that have been really critical in the early work of transcutaneous electrical stimulation, spinal cord electrical stimulation, you know, Reggie Edgerton, um, Yuri Jeremisinko, Parag Gog, um, Dimit and Dmitry Sayenko have all published several papers together demonstrating the ability to restore voluntary movement in the lower extremities of individuals who are classified as motor complete injuries. And in their papers, the majority of the individuals that they've studied have, um, have very chronic injuries. So I think that's also important to recognize as well, is that these dormant neurons may um, actually still have electrical viability even years after a spinal cord injury. Um, and I know for all of those individuals out there who have chronic injuries, you know, that's, I think that's really exciting that the technologies we're developing today, hopefully... And the, and the interventions we're developing today not only help the new injuries, but also help those um, individuals who've had these injuries for quite some time. Um, but there's a nice paper from um, the Reggie Edgerton group 
that, um, dem that demonstrate there's improvement in upper extremity function and grip strength in individuals with cervical spinal cord injury when paired with transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation um, with upper extremity training. And so I think, you know, we're, you know, a lot of times we all talk about walking and, you know, when a patient is first injured, that's oftentimes the first thing they say to the therapist is, I'm going to walk out of here. But then as I think the injury um, kind of matures, people then start realizing how important their hands are, and that becomes then a priority. Um, one of the top priorities for them is to get hand function back and to get bowel and bladder function back. And so we've seen um, this literature building, or this body of literature building that shows that maybe not only can it help with walking, but it also can help with bowel and bladder control and, also, and again, with that upper extremity um, improvement in, in function. Um, and then there was also a paper published by Raff et al. That, that supported improved trunk stability in individuals with spinal cord injury in response to this type of stimulation. So I think, um, you know, there is a growing body of literature to suggest that this can really be beneficial in a variety of areas of the body after spinal cord injury, and, and that's really exciting. But all of the literature that I've read so far really emphasizes how important the combination of task-specific training is with the use of this stimulation. And so I think that um, when we were designing our study here, that was a critical point that we wanted to include in the methodology, but that not we, were, we didn't want to just provide them with this type of stimulation, but we wanted to pair it with um, task-specific training so that we would hopefully allow them to maximize the use of that coordinated and functional motor pools when they were active. And so, you know, I think that that's really kind of what we've been focusing on um, with our study is just how do we kind of combine those two to um, try to facilitate a greater capacity of the nervous system for recovery than the tools that we currently have available in the clinic. I think you've highlighted really nicely just what an enormous impact this could have on people with spinal cord injury and, and spinal cord injury rehabilitation, right? Like, And I guess it makes sense if the really the idea is that we're turning up the volume of those remaining signals, then makes sense that it could have an impact on a whole lot more than just walking. Well, and even more than just walking and, and just arm movement. Um, yeah. And I know, I'm sure, Rachel, you, you know, you've been a clinician a long time, too. How many of those patients that you can remember came in and they said, you know, I can feel, send, I can feel myself sending a signal down there. You just can't see it moving or we just can't see it moving. And I mm -hmm. think about all the patients in my, in my clinical career who have told me that. And I, I don't know that I really... Believe, you know, I didn't know what to believe because I couldn't see the movement happen, happening. And I think now it, it completely makes sense to me. Those signals are going down there. They're just not strong enough to actually cause that motor depolarization. So I think, I don't know, it's brought a lot of my clinical history kind of back around to do some reflecting as well. It's the kind of thing that makes me want to call back all of my patients from all of the previous years and, yeah. you know, say like, it's, wait, just wait. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that there are some different hypotheses out there about mechanisms by which this might work. Now, granted, I'm going to just throw out there, this is probably hard to do just verbally. I feel like it's the kind of thing that having a, a drawing or something would help. But can you describe at least what some of those hypotheses are about the, the mechanisms by which this might work? Sure. So I think that what I learned is the biggest premise behind um, how this intervention works is that the majority of individuals with spinal cord injuries, even those with motor complete injuries, 
um, have a critical number of neurons that survive through the injury site. So it's estimated that as high as 84% of those individuals diagnosed with a motor complete injury by our INSCI exam still have a large number of neurons that survive within the injury site, but for whatever reason are no longer electrically responsive. You know, sometimes the nervous system just turns, it just shuts off activation to that area because it knows it's damaged. But these neurons have, are no longer electrically responsive, yet they're not damaged. They have survived the injury. So one of the hypotheses is that this type of stimulation activates the large diameter afferent fibers, those dorsal roots, um, which then are able to project to motor neurons within the spinal cord and transforming these surviving neurons into an electrically viable and or a physiological functional state. So it's like those dorsal roots are um, getting that stimulation and, and really increasing that electrical threshold or that electrical resting activity, and they're able to transmit that through projections onto the alpha motor neurons, which then allow those to become electrically viable, which then can be used to create motor movement or to create action potentials, which then result in motor activity. So then you've got these neurons that are now, that went from a dormant state to an electrically viable state. And so the goal would be that then using task-specific training to strengthen these neuronal connections to become stronger and eventually create neuronal networks through activity-dependent plasticity so that these neuronal networks can then activate functional and coordinated movement that would show us that there's a recovered state of this nervous system. And proprio-spinal networks are thought to play a really critical role in driving this activity-dependent plasticity. You know, and the, we all learned about the proprio-spinal system when we were in school, but I don't know um, that I really thought about it as much as I should have over the last 20 years. But essentially, the proprio-spinal system is known to play a significant role as being a, kind of a relay system between the brain and the spinal cord, and it's constantly interpreting afferent input and modulating spinal activity. From a functional connectivity standpoint, it extends the full length of the spinal cord, so it's functionally connecting these different spinal segments, both in the ventral and dorsal horns, which um, most importantly connects multiple levels of the spinal cord with axons and dendrites. So it's, you know, it's this large um, kind of connective, functionally connective system that not only acts as a relay system between the brain and spinal cord, but also between um, different segments of the spinal cord. And so, you know, the majority of these axons are located in the dorsolateral funiculus. So this is why it's, um, it's topographically thought to be a primary activation center for transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation. So we know that those dorsal roots are in the posterior funiculus and that the proprio-spinal network is there and it also segmentally connects all of those levels of the spinal cord the thought being that then it's better able to transmit electrical uh, between various levels of the spinal cord, and most importantly, through an injury site or through an injury segment that's been injured in the spinal cord. You know, one of the other important things to think about here is that um, these proprio-spinal circuits have been shown to be tonically active even at rest. So they're thought to produce kind of a stable foundation of available electric current for neural activation in the uninjured spinal cord. So they kind of, you know, they're running the full length of the spinal cord, they're transmitting information, and then they kind of have this resting threshold of electrical excitability to allow depolarization to happen when we want to, on a 
split millisecond when we want to move something. And so I think when we look at more of the injured nervous system, hopefully with the activation of with transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation, we're activating that kind of foundation of electrical energy so that we're providing a continuous supply of sub-threshold facilitatory uh, input that may be used to activate those motor pools. But again, if we bring it back to kind of more of a simple definition, we're just really trying to lower the activation threshold, allowing even weaker signals that are coming from the supraspinal centers to then propagate action potentials. Um, but the proprio-spinal system, it really seems to be kind of a major center that is getting this current and then allowing that to propagate um, to different spinal segments. That was really helpful. Thanks. And I, I'll also put a, a note in that the paper that you chose, the Tacola et al. paper, does a terrific job of describing this as well. And, and um, you've just supplemented that really nicely for me. Uh, there's a really great figure in there, too, that so if, for any listeners who are thinking like, ugh, proprio-spinal network, what? I, you know, from neuroscience in school that I've, I've forgotten about that. Um, it's a, it's a nice supplement as well. So thanks for that, that description. Absolutely. And you know, I was going to talk about that picture. I think you're probably talking um, about the picture that is on, um, I can't tell even what page it is, but. It's page, page 74, figure three. I'm yes. sure we're talking about the same figure. You're right. Page <laughs> and so essentially, I love that picture also because it just helped, it helps solidify my, my understanding of it. So essentially, the, the first picture shows a normal functioning spinal cord with an abundance of proprio-spinal neurons that have established large dynamic networks and are relaying information up and down the spinal cord, receiving afferent inputs and relaying that information between the brain and spinal cord to modulate our neural, neuronal activity, just like, you know, we, that, what, that's what happens in, the, in an uninjured spinal cord all the time. Then you see the second picture, which is a severely injured spinal cord, and you can see that the proprio-spinal neurons Below, below the level of the injury are dormant, and they're not really able to relay that information anymore between spinal segments or between the brain and the spinal cord. And then you see the third picture, which shows the use of transcutaneous spinal cord electrical stimulation, and it essentially creates a sub-threshold electrical stimulation um, that allows the, uh, that, that occurs below the injury site and can facilitate some functioning of those dormant proprio-spinal neurons. Um, so that, again, not all of them are going to continue being electrically viable and, and relay the same amount of information as an uninjured nervous system. But yet, if we activate enough of them, can we, um, you know, form these spinal networks and, and have them resting at a state that they can be depolarized um, with less overall current that's coming from the brain? So I agree. That's, I think that's a great, if, you, if people don't, if listeners don't have time to read the whole article, if you just look at those three pictures, I think it's a great, um, just general, under, can give you a great general understanding and explanation of this uh, type of, of intervention and what the overall goals are. Uh, I completely agree. Well, Candy, thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Discus. Thank you again for inviting me. This has been a treat to be able to talk to you about this and I love this podcast and so appreciate that you're taking your time, energy, and talent um, to do it. And I think it's a great way for listeners to get a little more information about some topics. And so I just appreciate your willingness to do it. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Candy. 
Uh, I also want to thank Ethan Stoller, who is our editor and composer uh, for this podcast. And of course, thank you listeners for tuning in. Uh, be sure to catch Dr. Candy Tiefertiller and Megan Gill at the Combined Sections meeting as they talk more about neuromodulation. Again, that'll be on Friday, February 14th, 11 o'clock. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, and I'll see you next time.